Please pray with me. Open our ears, O Lord, to hear your word and to know your voice. Speak to our hearts and strengthen our wills that we may serve you today, now, and always. Amen. We are now in a wonderful time in the church year on the high after Easter. The spring weather we've been having recently, especially today, it's almost summer weather, <laughs> certainly helps boost our spirits and our energy. The first scripture that we heard today that Rachel read from Acts chapter 7 is set in the exciting days of the church in Jerusalem and centers on one individual named Stephen, who is recognized broadly as the first martyr for the faith. And as has long been acknowledged, there was a dramatic difference in the way that the disciples understood Jesus and his message before his death and resurrection and afterward. Time and again during Jesus' life, as recounted in the Gospels, the disciples, though unquestionably devoted to Jesus, often just didn't get who he was and what he means for the world. The second scripture that Stevers read from John chapter 14 is one example where Jesus, at the Last Supper, tries to reassure his followers about his identity with God. He's not beating around the bush, it's just in the face of questions, the very, very end, he's laying it out and saying who he is. Now, the amazing fact about Jesus' followers after witnessing the resurrection or learning about it from others who had seen him, including the famously doubting Thomas, it's quoted in the John scripture, is that their previous uncertainty and waffling is completely gone. Arguably, the strongest evidence confirming who Jesus was comes from the events immediately following the resurrection when a more than somewhat motley but well-intended crew completely got it together to lead a movement that was literally to change the world. Now, turning back to the first scripture for today about Stephen, the early church saw rapid growth among Jews who were quite diverse culturally. So to think of them as sort of like a monolithic group, even just in the city of Jerusalem, is, is actually not quite accurate. In Jerusalem, the city where the, the early church was, the earliest church was based, there were two main groups, although there are many more, but there were two main ones, the so-called Hebraic Jews, who spoke Aramaic, which was Jesus' first language, and whose roots in Palestine were quite deep. And then there was also the so-called Hellenistic Jews, who were linguistically and culturally Greek Jews, who typically had lived in other parts of the ancient world, for example, Greece itself, but also places like Egypt and Turkey. In the days of the early church, as described in Acts 6, verses 1 through 7, now I'm quoting, about that time, while the numbers, number of disciples continued to increase, a complaint arose. Greek-speaking disciples accused the Aramaic-speaking disciples because their widows were being overlooked in the daily food service, the Greek widows. The 12, now apostles, called a meeting of all the disciples and said, it isn't right for us to set aside proclamation of God's word in order, order to serve tables. Brothers and sisters, 
Carefully choose seven well-respected men from among you. They must be well-respected and endowed by the Spirit with exceptional wisdom. We will put them in charge of this concern. As for us, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the service of proclaiming the word. This proposal pleased the entire community. They selected Stephen, a man endowed by the Holy Spirit with exceptional faith. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus from Antioch, who was a convert to Judaism. The community presented these seven to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. God's word continued to grow. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased significantly. Even a large group of priests embraced the faith. That's the end of that scriptural passage. Stephen soon distinguished himself among these deacons, quote, for the way God's grace was at work in his life and for his exceptional endowment with divine power. And he was doing great wonders and signs among the people, very Jesus-like. But at the same time, he ran seriously afoul of the local religious authorities who falsely accused him of blasphemy. Stephen delivered an extensive speech, actually a sermon, before the council, the Sanhedrin, essentially recounting the history of their faith and pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of what Moses and many other prophets had foretold. This infuriated the council. And then rereading the scripture that, that Rachel had read. But Stephen, enabled by the Holy Spirit, stared into heaven and saw God's majesty and Jesus standing at God's right side. He exclaimed, look, I can see heaven on display and the human one standing at God's right side. At this, they shrieked and covered their ears. Together, they charged at him, threw him out of the city, and began to stone him. The witnesses placed their coats in the care of a young man named Saul. As they battered him with stones, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, accept my life. Falling to his knees, he shouted, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And then he died. Interestingly, this is the first mention of Saul who shared Stephen's Greek language and outlook. Some have speculated that Stephen's martyrdom had a profound effect on Saul, at first for ill, as he zealously persecuted Christians, and later, as Paul, for good, after his own conversion. What is clear, though, is how Stephen's martyrdom marked a turning point for the church in, for the church in Jerusalem. The persecution of Christians accelerated dramatically, leading to the dispersion of Jesus' followers across Judea and Samaria and then beyond, becoming what some described as the kickstarting of Christianity as a global mission movement. So what are some of the takeaways for us from the story of Stephen? I think there are three. First, Stephen's personal transformation from, in essence, a table server, to an articulate exponent, sermonizer, of his and actually our faith at the cost of his life points to the amazing power of the Holy Spirit when we are open to receiving it. 
Think about the unanticipated turns our own lives have taken on our journeys of faith. And reflecting on Stephen's story. A second takeaway for me is that has to do with this concept of discipleship. Discipleship is really, really important in the Anabaptist walk of faith, going back 500 years to the very beginning of the movement. And what it is is very simple. It's aiming to follow Jesus' words and actions. The parallels between Stephen's final moments on earth and those of Jesus at his final moments in the passage that we've heard are really clear. While it's safe to say that none of us yearns to die a martyr's death for our faith, which thankfully is highly unlikely, Stephen does remind us of the importance of looking to Jesus as our model and emulating him as best we can. And the third takeaway, final takeaway is this. I think Stephen's final words underscore the amazing power of forgiveness which of course has particular meaning for Anabaptists. As I've shared in other reflections before, to forgive does not mean to excuse or forget. It is, quote, the intentional and voluntary process by which a victim undergoes a change in feelings and attitude regarding an offense. Let's go of negative emotions such as vengefulness, forswears recompense from or punishment of the offender, however legally or morally justified it might be, and with an increased ability to wish the offender well. Stephen's death did not inspire Christians to form guerrilla groups, to defend themselves against their persecutors, and engage in retribution or reactive violence. What did they do? They redoubled their work to share the basic message of God's love, thereby changing us and the entire world. Amen.